You're listening to the ninth episode of Season 4 of The Wicked Podcast. I'm Mike Moore. This podcast is about songs written for, or to, or about women. Mostly it's about how hard it is for a pair of human beings to form a healthy, lasting, close connection, particularly if their emotional and social development were messed around with by a strict, isolationist, rules- and shame-based upbringing in their formative years. It's also about depression, words, and music. Each song is me pontificating and ruminating around a song from my album Spurned, which is a really old word that means rebuffed, turned away, and rejected. You can listen to the podcast like one watches a video of a car accident over and over in slow motion. Episode 9. Would that make you happy? People who don't know me very well ask me why I never married or had kids. People who do know me quite well think they know exactly why, and they often tell me. Mostly, male and female friends alike tell me that I've been too nice with women. That's not what seals the deal, not what works with women. Treat them mean to keep them keen should have been my strategy, they say. That I've stupidly treated women coldly when I genuinely wanted them to go away, and warmly when I wanted to get closer to them. You know, backwards, stupid, too honest, too straightforward, too nice. And that's confusing to me. Because as should be obvious to anyone who's been listening to this podcast, I am often not terribly nice at all. Maybe it's as simple as me giving too much crap to, and conversely putting up with too much crap from, the wrong specific women. Not choosing wisely as to that. That could be. And then there's the idea that in neither church nor hookup culture circles did I play ball. I did it my way, and so I ended up alone. I guess in modern terms, back in the day, I was always too much of a simp and not enough of a player. Every day was a struggle to get my boyfriend's attention. Video games, sports, the boys. But that all changed once I found out about Cymbalta. Cymbalta is the first and only FDA-approved medicine specially formulated to promote simping. This is how it works. Cymbalta is a once-daily transrectal supplement designed to enlarge the simp region of the brain. Cymbalta saved my relationship. My boyfriend went from ignoring me to simping for me immediately. He no longer wanted to play video games or hang out with the boys. He had the urge to wake up early, go to farmer's markets, and wear cute outfits, just for fun. And the best part is, Cymbalta is 100% safe, so there's nothing to worry about. Cymbalta is extremely dangerous and not for everyone. Side effects include depression, loss of respect, shrinking testicles, loneliness, hallucinations, and in some cases, death. Call your doctor immediately if you have a simp erection lasting more than four hours. Relationships can be complicated. Simplify yours with Cymbalta. My father taught me that women were temperamentally defined by it simply not being possible to ever make them happy. And I've lived a long life looking for the chance to prove him wrong with one and never quite being given that chance for long. The best I've done is I think I've made a whole lot of women feel less unhappy when they're going through dark times in their life without getting the chance to work on, shall we say, the positive. This is one of those things where people with differing experiences have trouble seeing things the same way. When we talk about single people or people working the dating scene, we talk in generalities. Things like, one of the main results of hookup culture is that the number of women having recreational sex and the repertoire of sex acts casually performed by them has increased significantly, while the number of men successfully having any sex at all has narrowed down to a comparatively tiny, carefully selected in-group. 
But couples, on the other hand, tend to insist upon viewing themselves as utterly unique, and so their input is cute, but it's something they only discuss like it was a once-in-a-lifetime, inexplicable, crazy fluke thing that has only ever happened to the two of them. I've seen books and videos by men's rights activists, pickup artists, and so on, and could never really feel good about them. They all seem to be the same thing. The premise of each was that men, like me, loser men, cucks, betas, low-status males, and the worst appellation of all, nice, nice guys, guys, were never going to win unless we changed everything about who we were. If we weren't what worked, we needed to become what worked. We needed to read a book or sign up for a course in order to be told how to be less of a dad and more of a cad, how to play and win at hookup culture, rather than being benched for the rest of our lives. Women like nice guys, but they don't date nice guys. Women may enjoy spending time with you. They may consider you a good listener and a good friend, but that's about it. Being nice doesn't stir up any romantic feelings for them. It doesn't create the tension and chemistry that builds a romantic relationship. There are even ads that pop up on Instagram from time to time with a bossy, angry woman explaining that I've been too nice and I need her course to teach me how to just cut that out. Free trial sign-up available. All of it, near as I could see, and my dive into it was far from deep as I can't stand to even stand near guys spouting this line of thinking at parties, was about killing off the empathic part of you, the giving part of you, the part that viewed women as people with needs. You were simultaneously to view women as creatures utterly unlike men and then get from them, like clockwork, what a man wants. Stop working to know them and start using them. Negging was a big thing. How to erode a high-status female's confidence so she'd consider you a bargain. How to purposely trigger and exploit daddy issues and anxious attachment styles and trauma for your benefit. And shit-testing was a thing they said all women would do. Seeing how much shit you'd put up with from them. And not putting up with you if you acted like you were a low-enough-status male that you needed to put up with said shit. I talked to Megan about some of this. I think some American guy calls that shit-testing. I've never had that before. It's yeah, it's it's not a pretty phrase, but it's basically you're negotiating whether or not the relationship is getting close and whether the bonds are strong. And so it's something that apparently women are accused of doing, where they push to see what how far are they being allowed to go in terms of inappropriate behavior and, and being annoying or just doing things they shouldn't be doing and seeing if he'll put up with that. And that's called shit testing. Will you take my shit? Yeah, okay. I definitely see that um i think it probably would work to see how he would react in certain scenarios i definitely know of some people that have deliberately made their guy jealous by you know flirting with another guy to see you know will he be protective or possessive of me how will he react will he even care so it's definitely how they treat a situation we need a, a better more elegant phrase than shit testing though don't you think yeah or something, something British, like tea jostling or something. <laughs> yeah, that works. They give you the shit, and if you refuse to put up with it, they might keep you around. I remember the one online charmer saying that when walking up to a woman who's activated your balls, walk over to her with your balls, being very aware that you'd brought them along, and when you speak to her, speak from your balls. Hello there, I'm Joe's balls. I was hoping we could have a chat. This stuff was not for me at all. I feel like my mum might have said similar to me, actually. Really? I feel like um, 
if a guy is almost too nice for some reason I really don't know why I personally and a lot of other girls kind of push the boundaries and walk all over them and it's really not a nice way to treat somebody but it just kind of happens if someone doesn't really have a backbone and just kind of gives you everything you want and you kind of need someone to put you in your place I don't know why that is like I'm not a horrible person but I found myself doing that so I guess that kind of links in the you're too good for me so I'll just hurt you it also links to I had a song where I got the impression you know like it's a it's a British expression of treat them mean to keep them keen yeah I don't know that we have exactly that expression, but I did write in a song where I was very annoyed because I felt like I kept getting dumped by girls who needed someone meaner. And I really felt that was a thing. Yeah. No, I, I kind of get what you mean with that. I I don't know what it is. I guess it's just the age old kind of thing of a bad boy that's kind of good for his girl. So you mm -hmm. always kind of go for the more toxic guys than the ones that will treat you nicely because I mean nice can be boring right it just seemed to me like they were choosing more toxic guys and that was what they wanted and that's annoying <laughs> it tempts you to not be nice you know when they're doing that I spoke with Evan about this my, my initial reaction is, is I don't think women are really looking for guys who ignore them I mean I don't think that that's a bit far but I, I don't think that that's quite what you're saying either what I'm saying a lot in this season Mm -hmm. is that whether or not people know they're doing it or admit it mm -hmm. they're looking for what is familiar a lot of the yeah. time mm -hmm. and so a lot of women are uncomfortable mm -hmm. with guys who don't feel like home and what feels like home is often not good so okay. if they if they say well guys don't listen mm -hmm. and then you listen they'll reflexively yeah. say, well, men don't li listen. It's like, I'm listening. And it's like, uh, but, and then they don't know what to do. And, and increasingly they find that they don't know how to deal. So it's like, if that's your expectation that men don't listen, then the first guy who listens, yeah, you're worried he's really listening. Yes. Right. Like, like he, he's not just like casually, right. Like he's, he's, he's going way against your expectations. Well, that's me. So yeah. that could be shocking. I got a very negative response from women whose script, their schema is what shrinks call it. Their mm -hmm. schema is that if I'm a man and they're having a relationship with me, they will have to brace themselves for the fact that I'm not going to listen. And then when they find that in reality, I can quote them back to them and get their words and tone of voice correct. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Some of them find that they really hate that and they didn't know that they were going to hate that. But they'll say, I didn't say that. And you say, well, here's what you said. And you tell them what they said. Some of them really hate that way worse than they would if you didn't listen to anything they said. Well, they probably have no tools to deal with it. Like like in, in that situation, it's I'm not ascribing intention to you, but just generally somebody in this situation, like it could be combative, right? In a situation where you say, well, here's what you actually said, like that. That's not usually a good sign, right? That's not usually things are going well, and I'm quoting back to you what you said before. It's more like, well, this is what you said in the, you know, in the heat of an argument. I think both you and I mm -hmm. can, in a completely non-combative way, in an annoyingly calm and blank and factual way, especially when the other yeah. person is getting very not calm, say, well, here is what happened, mm -hmm. and I think that there's something infuriating because I think you and I both know that a lot of women are accustomed to having 
more vocal fluency in arguments and more control over their tempers and all of that. And when dealing with a man who can beat them at that, like I, I mentioned in the podcast, Anson, Anson mm -hmm. being a lawyer, that I think it might be pretty annoying to be a woman who's married to a lawyer. Yep. Because okay. it's, because it can be annoying to be a woman who's married to a statistician. And it can be annoying to be a woman who's married to an English teacher or or any number of things. It probably could be very annoying to be a woman who's married to a doctor or a dentist. Right. Like that there's just that they're good at something. I'm only gendering it because I'm a guy. I'm not I'm not saying that it's a gender oh, okay. thing necessarily. I'm just saying that it would I'm trying to but be empathetic and say, I can see that it would be annoying to be a woman. And although there is the gender component that the stereotype is that men are not very articulate about feelings. And mm -hmm. that's, that's, there's probably a lot of truth to that. Mm -hmm. And I think I'm unusually articulate about feelings for a guy in, in okay. a weird way. I mix that with calmness about it that I, that's, there's any number of things could be said about that. But mm -hmm. basically, if you're a woman, and what you're used to is men try not to talk to you about your their feelings, you push them, you get a bit of a conversation, and eventually they bail on it. Mm -hmm. If that's what you're used to, and you say it's very annoying, and then you deal with me, and you talk to me, and I'm willing to talk to you for five hours about your feelings and my feelings, sometimes that's very annoying, because you're not used to that. Right. And because it's the opposite of what you're braced for, you, you, you don't know how to deal. No. Right. So, it, it, you know, there's a bit of there's a bit understandably, of discomfort to, to understandably. Well, yeah, and it's it, it, I mean, it's nobody's fault exactly either. Right. You mm -hmm. know, it's it's not your fault that you're more articulate about your I mean, maybe you've spent more time trying to hone that skill. I mean, in that case, kudos to you. But generally speaking, right, like it's not like you chose that. Right. Like that's 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 who you are. And so. Yeah, there's there's no blame to lay here, but it it is interesting that if you're well, maybe you're complaining that men are are unthinkingly, unfeelingly, they're they're don't they're listen, whatever, and yeah, they don't listen, right? And on the other side, you know, the, the, you know, if you're if you're a guy, maybe you're complaining that you know your wife wants to talk too much about feelings, whatever. When yeah. when you when you get that script flipped, like you can't rely on anything you've learned, right? Mm -hmm. So it's it it is hard. People who haven't integrated the shadow at all are naive. And you can tell that when you look at them and you can tell that when you talk to them. And because they're naive, they're often resentful as well because they get taken advantage of. And someone who's integrated that more, they're dangerous in, in the martial arts sort of way, which is they're dangerous, but they don't have to be, they don't have to use it because their presence radiates implicit potential for havoc. And that's really necessary. It's one of the things that gives people self-respect. If you're harmless, you're not virtuous. You're just harmless. You're like a rabbit. A rabbit isn't virtuous. It's just, it just can't do anything except get eaten. It's not virtuous. If you're a monster and you don't act monstrously, then you're virtuous. But you also have to be a monster. Well, you see this all the time. Harry Potter's like that too. It's like he's, he's flawed, he's hurt, he's got evil in him. He can talk to snakes, man. He breaks rules all the time. All the time. He's not obedient at all. But, you know, he has a good reason for breaking the rules. And if he couldn't break the rules, him and his little clique of rule-breaking, you know, troublemakers, if they didn't break the rules, they wouldn't attain the highest goal. This thinking might have something going for it in terms of explaining the problem with being a young fundamentalist lad not playing by the rules of hookup culture, but living in that time and that place anyway. 
You're betting all of your chips on your faith community providing for you in terms of a partner because you're not pursuing other options, really. So in the language of the illustrious DJJP, in a bar, you're a rabbit. You're not a predator, excitingly dangerous, perfect for women to dress up to attract the predatory attentions of, and so you are really just there to be eaten by a man-eater, maybe. But then, if that happens, it turns out that If you're like I was, you're kind of a stainless steel rabbit, a clockwork lupine, because no matter who you are and what sexual bait you toss at me, you were not eating me and people like me. You just weren't. So in that setting, what was the point of someone like me? A whole lot of this thinking is very annoying to me, and I'm tempted to discount it because it sounds bad, but I really don't have better explanations, ones that cast men and women in a better light. All of it comes down to men and women mate when they act most like animals. I spent a lot of time in bars in the 90s, and almost all of it was about music. Seeing bands, connecting with session players from bands who'd be willing to record on my hackneyed stuff, supporting friends who were performing and sometimes performing myself. But I did notice the women and was eager to form connection to them. Not ones that started and ended with sex, though and two representative incidents spring to mind that illustrate what a fish out of water I really was. I was in one bar in Ottawa, and a beautiful girl in a small dress came up and started talking. We were standing right in the middle of the place, just having the conversation. A couple of sentences in, she said, I'm bored already. I was supposed to have flirted or made a move or something by that point, and I was just talking. Then she suddenly leaned in and kissed me yieldingly on the lips, leaning against my body. I kind of froze up a bit because I was startled, and as I hadn't grabbed her and kissed her some more immediately and aggressively, I might even have said something, she wandered off, looking for a match more easily struck. Similarly, in a different venue, a woman once dragged me by the wrist onto the dance floor while the band was playing and started dancing, aggressively grinding her hips into my crotch, seeing if she could glaze the front of my pants, apparently. And I danced with her as normally as was possible. I certainly did not grind back or grind harder like that would have been possible. I wanted to know who she was, her name for starters. She had no interest in mine, clearly. Once again, once the song was over, she moved on to bics that were easier to flick. In both of those stories, the women were drunk and I wasn't. And they were looking to be taken advantage of and I refused. That was their central goal that evening. And it wasn't mine. Sorry. I hope they both found somebody more predatory than me and that this made them happy. But surely, loser men, cucks, betas, low-status males, and nice guys, like me, often get taken under the broad wings of sturdy, gimlet-eyed, forceful women who need to wear the pants? Trouble there, I think, was that women of that kind could sense in me immediately that I just wasn't enough of a pushover. I was far too opinionated, driven, unchangeable, and stubborn by half, not nearly nice enough— I had a mind of my own, and I knew my own mind, and had a couple of decades of practice sparring with cult, sorry, high-demand religious group folks who wanted to wash my brain for me. Because I'd grown up in one of those groups, insisted upon being myself until they wouldn't acknowledge me as a person anymore, and now I wasn't looking to join a new one, whether they were into LGBTs, diverse faith communities, the environment, indigenous land rights, or raising gluten-free, homeschooled, vegan, feminist, unvaccinated, remember that, free-range kids. This song was, it looks to me now, written to express frustration 
about a series of women aborting barely started relationships with me due to my not being typically expectedly bad or unnice in typically expectedly deeply traditional male ways, of not remembering what men were bad at and being bad at them too, of not keeping my place. This song could also simply have been titled, Why Women Don't Like Me. Sour Grapes, Passionate Grievance Rock, Inseldom in the Making, Decades Before It Was a Thing. Had a conversation with Michael Vetter as well. I have a whole song that's kind of sarcastically written to a girl who responded negatively to whenever I acted well, and she responded well when I acted poorly, if this makes any sense. I almost had to imagine in my head, what does she actually want? And, and I came up with, I think she's expecting and would be happier, would know how to deal with a boyfriend who spent all the time on the couch watching sports and ignoring her and didn't care at all about her feelings. And the fact that I wanted to spend more time with her and the fact that I was actually interested in her seemed to really make her uncomfortable. Not creep her out or whatever, but that that's not what she thought of. That's not how relationships work, she didn't seem to think. I felt this pressure to be a bit of a more typical unfeeling guy. Yeah, I know what you mean. There, there is that, that pressure. To be the stereotype? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, because you're because you're, you're not the stereotype let's either. Think about all of, and let's not think about. Um, let's not try to overanalyze our relationship, but let's, right. let's only you know just kind of enjoy each other and and you over there, me over here, and I'll do my thing, you do your thing, um, and then we'll get it on in the bed. So it's like the relating is horizontal only. Yeah, there's no ascension to the the whole thing, and that that to me was what it should be. It should be like you your a relationship is like a starship, and you are going to take off and fly out into something that's completely unknown. Because you've been watching Star Trek, you nerd. I had a different starship in my mind. It wasn't Star Trek. <laughs> <laughs> what was your starship like? It was actually Douglas has uh, been been building these ships online in this game called From the Depths, and I had one of those in my mind at the time, but with more okay. lights and twinkles. Okay. I was thinking of songs by Starship, and uh, you probably oh. aren't, aren't thinking of We Built This City on Rock and Roll or Sarah. White Rabbit wasn't, was it? That was well, yeah, but they were called Jefferson Starship before they were just Starship. They wanted to be 80s. They lost the Jefferson part. But yeah, that's a that's a thing. All right, isn't it? That when you're trying to connect to girls and you don't have the expectation that step one is sex, you do other things that they're not prepared for, like analyzing and they're, they're thinking like why are we talking about a relationship that we don't have and it's like because we're trying to make one so how you make a relationship is the same way how you make babies it's like no it really isn't i think a lot of people do think that though well I, i'll give them this that when when couples get together and make babies immediately it it does make a, a relationship and they both have to focus on something other than themselves and it's really good because it distracts them from the fact that they might not really like each other or actually jumped into this a little too early or, or, <laughs> and it gives them a focus and it works. Well, I'd be willing to believe that hookup culture causes people to have to have all sorts of conversations and things they wouldn't otherwise have to do if they have, you know, chlamydia or pregnancy scares or, yeah. you know, exes and they end up having to talk and figure things out more because now they are in bed together literally yeah it is true the hookup culture but it's almost like they have to have the best show of being able to 
back and forth to get to that point of getting into bed. It, it's it's not a, a actual interest. And if it becomes one, wow, boy, that's a keeper, right? Yeah, it sort of accentuates the idea that it's a show, it's a performance. Like the first few dates are completely nothing that's sustainable. And my approach was very different. My approach with women, now that I think about it, was to dress relatively normal, like not not nothing very dressed up, and just go to a restaurant and hang out and walk around and talk and that kind of stuff. And not so much dinner in a movie, but as dinner and take a walk around or go see sites and that kind of thing. And and what I was almost doing was I was trying them on as a girlfriend in every way but sex of like we're hanging out we're, we're eating a meal at a nice place we took a walk down by the river and so to my mind that's the thing and i think to a lot of the women i was with they're thinking this is a precursor so this is this is supposed to make us have sex it's like no this is the thing what do you think of the thing like really we're going to talk about the river well it looks awesome it does seem like that disconnect was there I can't remember who or what specifically drew my ire on the occasion of this song's genesis, but this is the kind of vitriolic little number that flew across my frontal lobes from time to time, and one day I quickly recorded a rough version of it on my grungy old recording equipment, and no one has ever heard it but me, until now. What can I do to try to please you? How stupid, how uncaring do I need to be? Lose my sense of humor And watch football without listening Will that make you happy? Will that help you feel secure? I'm a good cook Yes, I can make anything But you don't like it And I'd rather cook my own You know how people are described as whistling in a graveyard to show they're not scared when maybe they are a little bit? It's a pretty natural thing for jilted guys to need to puff out our chests and sneer and swagger a bit to try to salvage enough dignity to, you know, live. So there's some of that attitude in this song. Tiny bit. Specifically, the song came from trying to be mature about women, not thinking I was their particular cup of tea, and doing pretty well with that until I started noticing what kinds of guys were getting chosen by them instead. I would be like, I get it. I'm just not. Wait, him? You're living with him and having a baby? I'm sure you've noticed by now talking with him that he's not particularly smart, right? Like at all, doesn't pay much attention, doesn't remember anything you say, just lies around watching hockey all the time. Hard drinker. Has very little to say ever. Fair bit of a temper though, I've noticed. That's what you needed me to be more like? I found that a whole lot of women preferred being ignored for sports and generally not being listened to than being debated on equal footing. Whoops. When women have complained that I don't listen, they certainly don't mean I didn't log every single word and argument they just used and prepared a rebuttal. They mean I didn't make them feel listened to, which is rather like making them feel correct. Why did you leave the restaurant like that? Surprised you noticed. You're so busy talking to your new friend, Alex. She found an auto part we were looking for. She was excited. She didn't know it was our anniversary. Sure she didn't. I'm sure it wasn't important enough for you to mention. <laughs> for your information, I didn't tell anybody it was our anniversary, regardless of race, creed, or sexual orientation. 
So you're an equal opportunity idiot. <laughs> I started watching sitcoms when I got a TV back in the day and noticed that there was this sitcom depiction of manhood that women seemed quite comfortable claiming was unerringly accurate. Whether it was Tim the Toolman Taylor, Dan Connors, Sam Malone, Joey Tribbiani, or whoever you care to name, men were comedically incapable each week of doing a long list of things. Mainly, they couldn't cook without making a complete disaster zone of the kitchen. They were stupid, unimaginative, and inarticulate. They couldn't talk about feelings or relationships, and they didn't really listen or remember their own wedding anniversaries and wife's birthdays, let alone anything much their partners ever said to them. My birthday? No! It's my birthday? What did I get? I love birthdays. No, Homer, it's mine. You don't even know your own wife's birthday? Well, of course I know. Sure. You really thought I forgot, didn't you? Oh, right. What'd you get her, Dad? Yeah, what'd you get? Uh, um... You were always catching them lying, too, which was supposedly hilarious. The dramedy of entire episodes would revolve around the guy being hesitant to propose, or having forgotten his wife's birthday, or gotten caught in a lie or something. They certainly, being men, were terrible at picking up on female hints, and for some reason, despite this, the women in the sitcoms chose female hinting as their primary mode of communicating with their clownishly stupid male partners. Jill, lighten up. I didn't understand what you meant on the phone. Well, what did you think I meant when I said all that stuff about how I was looking forward to seeing you and, um, I'll be waiting? Oh, like you said it like that, I'll be waiting. Well, I wanted to be more subtle. What did you want me to say? The kids are gone, I'm home alone, come and take me, Big Daddy? Well, that I understand. <laughs> Women smart, men dumb, got it, just like in real life. Oh, no, my mom said the only reason men are alive is for lawn care and vehicle maintenance. Think about it. It is true. She said once that men shouldn't even talk. They should just grunt like the simian primate bastards they are. <laughs> That's how men should talk. It's true. Now, I realize that much of this sitcom stuff was started and or done best by Lucille Ball, but it's been a taboo to depict any non-male ditzes, dolts, and morons much for a generation or so, so there aren't many of Lucille's like working lately. I don't imagine they'll do an all-female reboot of The Hangover or Dumb and Dumber anytime soon. I don't expect to see a gender-swapped Homer Simpson or Peter Griffin. My first response in my teens to this highly stereotypical, male-bashing sitcom depiction of my people was to think, oh good, I'm way better at all those things, so I'm going to be more desirable to women than those kinds of guys. But then I learned some things. The women I spoke to of all ages, and I've worked mainly with women all my life, kind of like not only the depiction, but being able to safely assume that men actually are bad, bad, bad at those kinds of things made their worlds and relationships make sense. Women were just better at everything in relationships. Feelings, certainly. Women's feelings, anyway. Do men have feelings? Rich, deep, nuanced ones? Real ones, just like women? Let's not be ridiculous. I learned that many women, with a besotted guy waiting on them hand and foot, but completely incapable of talking about their relationship or feelings or whatever, let alone writing a song about it, thought this bear puppy dog gorilla thing was kind of cute. It made them feel safe and superior. They had turf, and they were on it, and it was theirs. The kitchen, for example, back then, was often their turf. 
Guys were not to get delusions of adequacy in there. Guys were around to eat and appreciate and pay for food and to assist women while women did the real work in the kitchen and ooh and ah over the magic created therein, helping them clean up afterward and taking the trash to the curb. Perhaps we're better nowadays about men who are good cooks than we used to be. But this wasn't always the case. I'm old. I can remember. Now, I was working as a short-order cook when I was 16, and so I was intrigued at first and then eventually annoyed when woman after woman tried kitchen-splaining to me when I was cooking stuff, often in my own kitchen. My cooking has always been in a short-order cook style, to get things ready to eat in the fastest, simplest way possible, all the while soiling the fewest bowls, pans, whisks, and so on I can manage, and taking up the smallest amount of counter space possible. Quick, efficient, and maybe a bit industrial? The other cooking I did was in group homes for 10 or 15 handicapped adults. Again, efficiency, speed, and not making much of a mess. So I need people to stand back when I'm working. Something that never happened when I was a short-order cook or working in a group home was a small group of men entering the kitchen and standing around blocking everyone's way, asking to be assigned jobs to do, please, in order to help, trying to find ways to make every element of the meal more elaborate somehow and take as long as possible. For me, preparing food has never been leisure, something to pass the time, something to linger over. It's also never been collaborative. And I mean, where's the fun in that? Very utilitarian, I know. I think this is why men so often like to barbecue things. It's not happening in the kitchen, and people tend to stand out of the way and let them get to it, and also fire and outside. There was a line in this song once about being a good enough cook to prefer my own cooking, but that's gone at this point, so you won't hear it. I've noticed that not only women, but anyone trained to be more of a chef or foodie seems determined to create the most complicated, time-consuming meals possible, with the largest number of things soiled in the process and the more stages and intricate, decorative, ritualistic stuff that can be contrived for their nine-course culinary bacchanal. Can this involve a kitchen tool so obscure IKEA and Walmart have never heard of it? Can we involve marinating, chilling, searing, simmering, blanching, boiling, basting, frying, broiling, and baking all in preparing this one same appetizer? Scrumptious. This was really complicated to make. Must be delicious. I'm really, really, really not like that, even today. But back in the day, in person and in women's magazines, women always spoke of guys having great senses of humor being important, and I soon noted that this didn't mean that they wanted a guy who loved comedy movies and was a stand-up comic. They weren't looking for a guy who laughed a lot. It more often simply meant that they wanted a guy who laughed at the woman and her friend's jokes and sex in the city and so on. Women also praised sensitive guys as being a special kind of human being they were looking for. It most often meant not a guy who felt things keenly, but one who was well attuned to the feelings the woman in question was experiencing, without being overburdened by any feelings of his own particularly ones that might be out of sync with her moods, so not being sad when she was happy, or being able to have a good time even when she was sad, or getting competitive and leaning into an argument when she was angry and tired of it, were all bad. You were supposed to meet happy with happy, sorrow with sorrow, and anger with retreat. You were supposed to be able to synchronize your feelings with hers. Women praised guys who could cry, but only if they themselves were crying at that specific point. Watching romantic comedies makes me cry, not because of the trials and tribulations of the obnoxious, goofy main characters in the story, but just because I'm stuck watching them for the duration of the movie. Good movies are about death, not courtship, as far as I can tell. 
With the notebook, I was definitely cheering for the dementia. Finally, he could forget all about her. The women all around me back in the day were always complaining that men weren't listening to them. At a high-tech job, I was job-splained as to reflective listening. The necessity to not let anything a female co-worker said pass without saying, I hear you, and I appreciate what you're saying, and wow, getting stabbed in the head must have been frightening. Did it hurt? And thanks so much for sharing that. Not disagreeing or adding to the conversation without due reverence paid to what had just been said. In fact, making disagreements sound like kind of alternate forms of agreement giving a mutual emotional massage rather than having a rousing game of tennis where you actually, you know, try to play well and maybe win. Men in real life were often described as being just as terrible about hints as the guys in the sitcoms. Female, hints anyway, of being bad at reading the room, if there were women in it, of not being good at only saying and doing the kinds of things in the kinds of ways that would be most likely to go over well with women of not knowing what was going on emotionally with women, of not knowing what women were trying to accomplish, or needing them to simply tell you. Again, I had a big problem there when it came to only saying and doing the kinds of things and the kinds of ways that would be most likely to go over well. I was raised that way to fundamentalist Christian standards and was entirely done with living like that. I was raised to be terrified to say or do anything that would not go over well in a Christian circle. So as a young adult, if I thought something awkward or unpopular needed to be said, particularly one of those things that everyone knew, but also knew you weren't supposed to ever say, I would often unhesitatingly go right ahead and just say it. That might make a lot of people quite angry, in theory. People got very angry at the very idea that some purely theoretical person might be offended, certainly. In practice, a lot of people were delighted at the honesty of what I'd finally just said, and even more delighted that someone other than they had been the one to say it. To this day, people come up to me after staff meetings and so on and tell me the best part was the part where I went ahead and said the true thing right out loud in words right where people could hear it. Usually, it makes them laugh so much with delight that that ever happened, because often it's not supposed to happen. Another big problem back in the day was that I got uncomfortably good at picking up on it when women weren't telling me things or were outright lying. You see, just like farting, men aren't the only ones to do all that. And when any guessing game was clearly afoot, I tended to work with the women to try to get them to put their hints into words if they wanted me to do what they wanted me to do. And they often resisted this quite strenuously. Just say it, as far as I was concerned, if it matters to you. Otherwise, I'm sorry. And we're definitely not going to have a verbal fight about me doing something other than something you refused to tell me you wanted me to do. So it seemed to me that women in person and in women's magazines only appreciated men showing virtues that benefited them personally, not ones that challenged them. It seemed that women might be human beings, just like men, trying to make things go all their way and complaining if that didn't work out. And this song is about that too. It's really odd that I'm single, isn't it? One of life's great mysteries. Now, my problem in my 20s was threefold, at least. For one, I was working with women a lot, and they weren't used to that. I was often the man, and not in the cool way. I'm pretty used to people talking at length at work about harrowing hysterectomies, hunky gynecologists, and clumpy periods. Never really bothered me. For another thing, 
I was raised in a Christian group in which women weren't allowed to even take vocal part in Bible discussions, and men certainly didn't need to do what looked to me like caressing each other's feelings before saying things about the Bible. We men didn't need or want time spent on any of that sort of thing. We didn't have all day. We had begats and emeralds to get to. For a third thing, I'm argumentative, low in agreeableness. I quite enjoy a good, brisk, verbal wrestle. So if you were a group of women and I wasn't talking at all in an hour-long conversation, it didn't mean I was giving you space or listening respectfully. It meant I didn't care about anything that was being said at all, but was stuck there miserably, mentally tape-recording the whole thing in my head. And if you were women and I argued with you or tried to further bolster a point you made by adding to it or disagreeing with some of it slightly, it meant I was interested and fully engaged in what you were saying and interacting with you as an equal, very much despite my upbringing, treating you the way I treat men. Now, I had trouble remembering that women supposedly have an emotional frailness that men aren't supposedly sure how to deal with, a list of special emotional needs that men don't share or understand. But working with you, you women looked plenty tough and capable to me most of the time, unless you were actually crying, and even then often. And if where I was working, you were all women, and I said, that sounds like it would make you feel very, very sad. I'll bet that was frustrating. I'm so sorry that happened to you. Thanks so much for sharing your feelings with us. I was doing what felt to me like the corporate conversational equivalent of showing up to work in full drag. Had trouble not snickering if I tried to do it, and certainly didn't respect people who, at the workplace, being paid for the professionalism and time, needed that. Or they might cry, or angrily tell you that they almost did because of you. To this day, every time someone I'm working with starts crying on the clock, I try to help them hide this to help save their dignity. Give them a Kleenex and some privacy. I leave it to female co-workers who don't like them much to hug them and help them sort out their makeup and then gossip about them afterward once they've left the room. I try to help them keep it together. Or failing that, get it back together. Because they are, after all, working in real time. There's stuff to do and people are going to be noticing. Except I work mainly with women and sometimes there's only me to deal with an upset crying woman. And sometimes she can't stop crying. And it needs to be dealt with by someone. And there's no women around. And sometimes they're not going to be turning around and getting right back to it. And they have a break and they have time to cry and want someone to be with them rather than hiding their tears. And then what I do is I suddenly can't help but play that long-practiced habitual priest-confessor or therapist role. Understanding father, straight, gay, best friend. It's the only way I know how to deal with a crying woman. I ask questions and I try to help them identify their feelings, put them into words, and get some perspective on what's happening. I suddenly get slow, quiet, and very sensible. I give 100% of my attention to what's being said for as long as the conversation goes on. I ask a lot of grounding and perspective-seeking questions. I seek clarity as to what they're saying and what they're not saying. I know well that many women want more than anything else for you to be miserable with them for a solid chunk of time, not making them less miserable by helping them hope or plan to improve their lot. Often, I even remember to be miserable with them rather than being insightful or hopeful. And I get excellent reviews from women once I've fulfilled this function for them in one of their emotional emergencies. It's one of those things I've done a lot and for many decades. When I was 23, I worked for an afternoon taking cognitively challenged people 
on an outing with another co-worker my age, a very cute blonde girl, and she was giving off signs that she was dealing with something and wasn't quite present that afternoon. So instead of ignoring the signals she was putting off, I inquired, and we talked about what was going on with her. And afterwards, she said, Mike, you're you're really really good at this, and started dating my cousin. Most days, though, I find women have trouble adjusting to a coworker who, when he's upset, knows it and knows why pretty much immediately and has already decided what he is or is not going to do about the situation. When I'm really very angry at work, people often have to ask if I'm angry. I'm a man. I have to hide anger. It scares people. It doesn't help me for anyone to sit and be miserable with me to say, when you got frustrated this morning, that must have been very frustrating. That, unsurprisingly, frustrates me. It does help me to have someone be a sounding board as to working out my understanding of exactly what happened and why and what should happen next and why I'm not actually going to shout, swear, break things, or hit people after all and let me talk out what I'm going to do instead. I guess, being only five foot eight, I have small man syndrome, but having taken far more violence, harassment, and outright crap from big, strong, stupid guys on my way up to five foot eight and 20 years of age than the average woman is likely to have experienced in that same period of time, I have grown up to be a man who has no patience with and very little fear of big, strong, stupid men. And I have a lifelong experience of knowing better than to act like them, though feeling the childish temptation to do so every bit as much as they do. Now, it goes without saying that crying can be used as a power move it is difficult to counter. In my career, I have occasionally worked with someone for whom it is a main tactic. If you have a difference of opinion or disagreement with anyone and she cries about it to someone else, you may find yourself cast as quite the monster, even if all you're doing is refusing to feel ashamed or refusing to be pushed around by someone with a long track record of always getting her way, often using tears to get it. In fact, one of my male colleagues getting screwed around as to his schedule years ago because of a colleague going to admin and crying in the office went down himself and said, look, if it helps, imagine I'm crying right now. Turns out it did help. He was unable to wield that tool literally, but simply referring to it earned him the right to be taken equally seriously as to scheduling grievances. He might as well have burst into tears right there. Final thoughts on all this? Well, you've seen me do this trick before. Here it is again. Feelings. Women are better at feelings. uh, Women's feelings. Hints. Women are better at both giving and taking hints. Women's hints. Reading the room. Women are better at reading rooms, ones with women in them. Are women impossible to please, never content with anything? Of course they are. And so are we men. Unsurprisingly, I am going to suggest now that maybe men have their whole own stuff going on sometimes, and that we can work together, often with little or no words necessary, picking up a lot of hints, reading rooms, and so on, just like we're all the same basic kind of creature. That being said, I'm far from the best at dealing with men's feelings, hints, and rooms, because... Apart from the whole Plymouth Brethren thing, which functions as less of a social help and more of a social handicap right from the get-go, I've spent my life almost entirely working with women or in rooms where their feelings were what was going to make or break the afternoon. That's what happens when you self-identify early on as someone who prefers to work with people to working with things. So on the job, I've generally been the worst person at dealing with people in an environment in which most people are women who are pretty good at dealing with people. Female people, anyway. I haven't found them to be terribly good at dealing with me. Let's look in the Wicked Mailbag. A one, a two, a three, a four, a five, a six, a seven, a eight, a nine, a ten, a eleven, a twelve, a thirteen, a fourteen, a fifteen, a sixteen, a seventeen, a eighte
after objecting in a quite modern way to any questions or generalizations of any kind that presented what men and women are looking for romantically and sexually and how they're trying to achieve it as in any way different and about the role of nice in it all, Deb wrote, you have to imagine I have a female voice with a delightful British accent, to be honest, as an ex-Taylorite, no normal dating in E.B. Hallowed Halls anywhere, thank you very much, I've never been a clued-up fan of the dating scene and have always tried to avoid it as much as possible. I much prefer starting friendships, and if it progresses over time in a sparky direction, well and good. But then I tend to be a bit odd, apparently, in that I don't like having sex with people without a level of exclusivity, or perhaps is monogamous commitment, even if fairly short-lived, the phrase I'm looking for? Guys are just individuals, as I see them anyway, with varying degrees of niceness, sensitivity, trying too hard or not enough, decent in one situation but hopeless in another. Rather like us girls in that way, upside down smiley face. So that's my rather odd not up with the dating scene response. Forgive me, but I'm not even slightly interested in changing that after six years single. The idea of playing the field horrifies me, and I'm not really interested in males who do. Limiting? Hell yes, but quite happy with those limits. Ta! Actually, I think Deb has just outed herself there as a member of the LGBTQ plus community. A demisexual, to be specific. Like me? Asked about nice, Curry writes, This has been definitely covered and studied by experts. I'll offer my take anyway. I guess this depends on how we define nice. No woman, no sane ones anyway, want to be treated poorly, cheated on, and taken for granted. However, Few quality women want a low-confidence, incompetent, low-earning beta male, no matter how nice he is. It's just true. There are exceptions, and I've seen them. Not enough to be relevant, though. Will women tolerate a cocky, arrogant guy, occasionally even a rude guy? Yes, to a degree. If he treats her well, earns well, is highly competent, and, well, a winner. In summary, quality women want a strong, competent man who can earn and is a leader, generally speaking. The harsh but simple truth is, again, generally speaking, the younger and more attractive the woman is, the more particular she can be about the men. No woman wants an asshole who's going to mistreat her, but many will tolerate a certain amount of cockiness and arrogance if he delivers in the other categories. That's how I see it, and that's been my experience. Well, that seems to explain it. In my 20s and 30s, I certainly was a low-confidence, low-earning beta male. Twenty years of teaching has made me more arrogant about some of it, and I'm more cynical, but little else has changed. I guess part of the problem is I've always gotten labeled, I was going to say, I've always gotten pegged and thought better of it very quickly, as a nice guy. And I've always tried to date females, so my view is, of necessity, heteronormativist nesical. I'm assured that what women want, all of them apparently, in, for example, the new James Bond, is a strong but sensitive and caring man. One who has a license to kill and a permit to cry. One who will fight for what is right and admit when a woman says he is wrong. As far as I can tell, a whole lot of the subtext behind modern cinema and television, now that many women have increasingly been given the reins to tell the stories they'd like to see, is that what women want is to beat up a lot of men without getting hurt at all, to take our stuff, tell us all of the things we're wrong about, and do our jobs better, even though it's been a much harder road, obviously, for a woman, for whom everything is more difficult, and that's our fault too. Being Aragorn, the next king of Gondor, Bruce Banner, the Incredible Hulk, or Luke Skywalker, the last Jedi, piece of cake. Those guys never had to live life as a woman. 
being Galadriel, Jen Walters, the She-Hulk, or Ray Palpatine Skywalker, now that's a challenge, something no man could ever do. One of the reasons I chose this song as one of the three I was going to get George drumming on was that of all of the songs, this one was most like something George would write himself. In fact, once he'd done the drums for this one, he said if it was okay, he was going to use the drum part to record one of his own songs to as well, as they would fit it perfectly. Made this an acoustic song and didn't put electric guitar into it at all. I played some very sloppy harmonica so there'd be harmonica. I did some call and answer voices. You don't like it when I won't lie to you. No, no, no. What can I do to try to please you? How stupid, how uncaring what I need to be. And even did a ZZ Top sounding laugh. <laughs> I'd done a typical bass guitar part for the guide track, and George, upon hearing this, said, You want me to fix that bass for you? Would that make you happy? I said, Sure, and that I also thought the song would work with some George banjo or mandolin on it. So I ended up with George playing drums, bass, and banjo on it. to collaborate. I tried the Johnny Cash trick where I stuck a playing card in the strings of my guitar and used it as a percussive device. Played some shakers to make the rhythm a little more tasty. Played some tambourine. George messaged me and told me that I should play a cowbell on the first and third beats of the chorus for this one, or failing that, knowing that I didn't have a cowbell, to play a bottle and add water to it until it was tuned to the right pitch to sound good for the song. I tried it with a bottle, and I tried it with a cowbell sample that's on my 80s drum machine. I just used an empty beer bottle for the bottle sound and thought it sounded kind of thin and weedy, so I decided to add in a second bottle to fatten up the bottle sound. Having used a Canadian beer bottle the first time, I added in a big bottle still half full of maple syrup tapped and rendered a mile up the road from here. Altogether, the added percussion mixed in with the drums pretty well.
I tried out a little keyboard that George didn't want anymore and did some one-finger organ sounds on it for the choruses. Will that make you happy? Will that help you feel secure? 